The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on the show today. I'm so excited. One of my favorite futurists in the world is here today, Thomas Fry, who is very well-known, one of the most well-known futurists uh, around the globe, founder of the Da Vinci Institute, and um, uh, an institute that is really a powerhouse when it comes to being a think tank and a consulting firm, and even sort of a, a source of connecting and networking among different people. And uh, Thomas has a fascinating background, was an engineer at IBM for, for 15 years. Um, but my interest in him was the work he's been doing as a futurist, um, especially over the last decade or so. So um, Thomas, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, let's talk about you a little bit. Before we dive in, um, I have an interesting format for the show, um, but before we, we dive into that, could you talk to the audience a little bit about how did you get here? How did you get into this this work as a futurist? Wow. Um, I, you know, I get that question a, a lot, and I, I wish I had a better answer. It's, it's, see, it's never a straightforward line. Um, it... Uh, Doing what I'm doing today is it's actually the last thing I ever thought I'd do when I was a kid growing up. I, well, I didn't even know what a futurist was. Uh, my my thinking was always kind of time shifted into the future. So, you know, people wake up in the morning and they're wondering how they're going to get to work today. I'm wondering how people are going to get to work ten years from now. Hmm. Or they they get up and they say, "Well, I'm wondering what I'm going to wear to work today." Well, I'm wondering what people are going to wear to work ten years from now. And so I always had that um, that idea of what's coming and what's what's out there in the future. And I was, you see, I was always so excited about the future because I would see the covers of Popular Science magazine. I would see the stuff coming out of Bell Labs, and I the the future was so exciting. Man, I I, I couldn't wait to get there. And today, uh, it's tricky. T- taken a radically different turn. So now the average person on the street, if you ask them about the future, they have a very negative, very dim view of the future and uh, how we're going to have more wars. We're going to have more disease, more, more problems to deal with poverty. And uh, I want to somehow bring the fun back into the future. Uh, I want to bring the optimism because there's lots of good things that are going to come out of this. Yeah, we're going to have problems, but all those problems are going to create opportunities. And I'm pretty sure I've just avoided your question. Completely. No, not at all. That's great. In <laughs> fact, one of the quotes that I love by you is that uh, you say that thinking about the future will cause it to change. So this optimistic perspective that you just shared, uh, perhaps that will help us create a more optimistic future. Uh, I think so. I think so, because you know, just thinking about the future gives us, um, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, power and dreams and the way you, you set up your visions of what comes next, uh, how you plan your day. How you, uh, so I, I, I use this phrase quite a bit, is that the future creates the present, mm-hmm. which 
this is just the opposite of what most people think. Most people think that what we're doing today is going to somehow create the future, but from a little different perspective, it's these images of the future that you have in your head determine your actions today. So if I change somebody's vision of the future, I actually change the way they make decisions today. And that, that's a, a real important, um, it, it legitimizes what I do, at least in my mind. Yeah, that that really resonates. That's a quote that resonates with me. And as one who grew up with sort of classic science fiction, I was sort of a Roger Zelanzi, Isaac Asimov fan. I had a teacher who introduced me to those early on. That certainly is true for me, even the sort of the, the musings about the future in that literature certainly changed me in that present moment. Right, right. Hmm. Well, that's great. Um, so what I thought I'd do, oh, actually, one more sort of introductory question before we, we dive into this this format. I um, For the listeners, I actually uh, told Thomas what we're going to do in advance, but um, but you don't know yet, listeners. <laughs> so um, the other question I wanted to, to uh, just get at that was a little more kind of on your personal uh, journey perspective was, uh, do you have any any major influences? So in your work around futures, are there people or uh, innovators or inventors or thinkers who have been sort of persistent influences for you? Oh, I love the stuff that Peter Diamandis is doing. I love Kevin Kelly. He's uh, one of the founders of Wired Magazine. He's uh, Dan Burris is another one. Uh, those are those are some that are. Uh, rise to the top so to speak ah great but yeah there's lots of other things that will influence your thinking along the way and it's not always people that are designated as futurists so (laughs) yeah absolutely um well uh, what i thought we'd do for this for this interview and you get interviewed a lot um uh, i thought i'd do something maybe a little different perhaps you've experienced this before but in advance i went through and i picked some of my favorite and perhaps some provocative quotes and predictions that you've made over the years i think most of what i found is from maybe 2013 and and forward and and i thought i would just share one and then we could have a conversation and we'll see how far this this takes us um, okay but the first one i want to start with is uh i mentioned this to to you actually before we started recording that I have two quotes that are among my favorite whenever I think about effecting change in the world or having some kind of positive impact in my community, my own life, uh, people I care about, um, and, uh, and maybe even on a larger scale. One of them is a G.K. Chesterton quote, you cannot grow a beard in a moment of passion. <laughs> that one always resonates with me. And, um, and the other one is your quote uh, that goes like this. Every avalanche begins with the movement of a single snowflake. With each new project, my goal is to move a snowflake. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. That's not intended to be a political. Quote. I know, I know. Today it takes on a little different meaning, doesn't it? <laughs> I didn't think about that. I actually shared it with my team uh, recently, uh, and I, I hope they didn't read that read that into it. <laughs> um, so so uh, maybe I don't know any sort of thoughts or reactions about that. What does that look like in your work or your life, or how did that come about? Yeah. See, with with you're you're always looking for inflection points. Where, where can I apply pressure to uh, to move a mountain? You know that that sort of thing. And so it's it's the idea that y- you don't need to um, create the entire 
avalanche. You just need to create the the one thing that causes it to happen. And and so what does that look like? And sometimes it's a minor invention. Sometimes it's a little bit of a change in process. Sometimes it's uh, just thinking about things differently. Um, but uh, usually we, we stall out because we're trying to move the mountain rather than the, the little thing that will make it all happen. Uh, it's, it's, so it's a little different perspective on uh, how, we, how we can affect change in the world. As, as a futurist, you're, you're always looking for, um, you make predictions about this is likely the direction that we're headed, but there's, there, there has to be a, a few advances in technology along the way, and sometimes they, those don't happen. As, as an example, in the, the field of holography, back in 1948, the gentleman invented holography. I, his name escapes me right at the moment. It's right on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, he, he, he managed to, to line everything out. But the, the, the number of innovations that, should be, uh, that needed to happen to make it come about just uh, are, are more difficult than people imagine. So we've, we've had a lot of iterations of change in the, in the field of holography, but uh, and we can imagine what it, what it would look like having a three-dimensional display above our computer. Um, but we've been trained to think two-dimensionally. We've been trained to think with uh, two-dimensional paper and whiteboards and blackboards and even the screen on our computer is two-dimensional. So we can imagine what that would look like to have things displayed three-dimensionally, but we, we don't have a good grasp as to what it would be like to three-dimensionally surf the web or three-dimensionally create different charts and graphs because what does that third dimension represent? So uh, we're, we're, we struggle with, with things like that. So we're, we're right on the, I think we're right on the edge of actually making it happening happen. But uh, sometimes the, the, the problems are bigger than we, we first imagined them to be. So finding that inflection point is just a, a key to so many, so many of the issues that we're dealing with. Yeah, that's great. Well, and for the quote itself, the imagery of a moving a snowflake is uh I I live in, you know, cold weather terrain, Vermont and Wisconsin. So, <laughs> I have a a visual of this. <laughs> um that's great. Um so here's a, here's another quote uh that's that's broader. I have a few predictions and we'll work our way more specifically into education as we go along, but but this one um is intriguing. There's one that that may or may not have direct implications to education, but it's it's really fascinating to me, so I have to ask about it. But this one is um, humanity. I don't remember when you made this quote, so I don't know the source. Maybe you remember um, when you first uh, made it. Humanity will change more in the next 20 years than in all of human history. Yeah, and it's um, where the, the change is happening right beneath our feet. There's, there's so much going on right now. I just got back from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Hmm. Uh, this staggering number of things that they uh, demonstrated out there, the new technology coming and uh, just this tidal wave of stuff that's uh, going to be flowing over us. Yeah. We've, we've got a lot of changes in store for us and it's, uh, it's moving the bar rather rapidly. Yeah. That one. So you still stand by that. You still uh, would say that, 20 year time frame more change than in all of human history? Yeah, I think so. I think so. 
Um, yeah, the, one one of the things I think about is I think that driverless technology will be the most disruptive technology in all history because it just touches so many aspects of our lives, uh, so many industries, so many businesses that, uh, and it uh, it unfolds over the next couple of decades here as uh, it starts kicking into every every car company in the world has got driverless technology that they're working on every tractor company every um every moving vehicle is thinking about driverless technology and there's so much money being invested in it that it's a race to see who can come up with the the first uh workable system that uh everybody can use and it's right around the corner here yeah, no, that one's interesting. And I love why, how we're starting broad like this, because if we dove just into the future of education narrowly, I think we'd miss this important kind of context, this sort of load, larger social change that's happening. And obviously, education fits within that. So uh, one of your quotes is, by 2030, you have these sort of list of, of, of quotes by 2030. By 2030, over 2 billion jobs will have disappeared freeing up talent for many new fledgling industries. And I bring this quote up right now because for me, when you start talking about the self-driving um, kinds of vehicles and the like, uh, one thing that comes to mind for me is a massive shift uh, in the workforce as a result of that. Well, well, absolutely. Um, now, when, when I made that quote, that was uh, in 2012 in Istanbul at a, a TEDx uh, event, the, it was never intended to be a doom or gloom statement. It was never intended to say we're going to have 2 billion people unemployed in the world. Um, it was intended to be a wake-up call. We're going to have to create new jobs at a faster rate than ever before. And uh, so we, we, we absolutely have to do that. But that's not the whole story. The, we're, we're not automating entire jobs out of existence. We're automating tasks out of existence. Um, so as an example, if somebody is a meter reader and they go out and read the water meter or electric meter on your house, um, once, once the, the meter readers actually do more than just read the meters. They, and so once, once that information starts coming into the office wirelessly, then, then people no longer have to go physically drive out and read the meters. But the job itself doesn't completely go away. Naturally, it can be done with fewer people, but the job gets redefined. And and so that uh, that idea of some of the tasks going away, and so so then you you, you start going down this path of of asking um, how different is it, and is it the same profession? Um, so I, I use this this example quite a bit. the um, The cars that we drive today have actually been in development for the past hundred and twenty years. Hmm. Uh, so the people that have been designing cars for the past hundred and twenty years have been focused on one central task, which is uh, the driving. Um, So they're focused on the human relationship to the steering wheel, to the dashboard, to the gas pedal. Um, And so trying to get that designed and engineered just right in every car. Now, as we move into the driverless era, suddenly all of that goes out the window. All of that body of work about the human relationship to these different parts of the car go out of the window and the designers of cars uh, are focused on everything else that goes on inside of a car other than driving. So, so then you have to ask the question, well, is it the same job? Now that that becomes a real important question 
because 20 years from now, we're still going to have doctors, lawyers, teachers, and nurses, but the tools they use are going to be vastly different. So then you, once again, you have to ask the question, well, is it the same job? Is it the same profession? And I think that's going to be a key question that crops up again and again and again in the future. Yeah, you know, that one is, um, the, so the doctors, lawyers, teachers, that's one that, that intrigues me because I've found myself maybe um, sharing, framing a similar comment in such a way that it was really intolerable, not, not uh, easy to digest, especially among a group of educators. Whenever I would say something like the the role of the teacher as we know it may not exist in the future, um, yeah. or suggest that if we were to break out the different tasks and roles and responsibilities of a teacher and those to be fulfilled by a variety of people, what would we call those individuals? Would we call them teachers or we call them something else? Uh, I think the way that you just described it maybe might be a little bit more um, digestible to at least concede that some concept of teacher, lawyer, doctor will exist. Yeah. Um, so what aspects of their job still remain? I, I tend to think that the, the teachers tend to move into more of a coaching role than a teaching role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the, the, the actual teaching part actually gets automated. Um, that's what it looks like to me, but that's uh, uh, part of a much bigger conversation there. Sure. Well, dealing with some of these broader sort of societal kinds of predictions leading into this education more detail, another quote that uh, 2030 quote that intrigued me was by 2030, democracy will be viewed as an inferior form of government. Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, I, I definitely think it will be. Um, uh, but what's what's a better form of government? I, I'm still not sure what that is. Uh, it. It just seems like there's there's too uh, there's 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 too many uh, bad attributes to a democratic society, at least the way we practice it today. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's um, too much div- divisiveness. Um, it um, it doesn't bring out the best in people, and uh, so I I. I raised this issue quite a bit that I think that there are certain areas of society that are too complicated for most governments to, to wrestle with. So as an example, in the, in the world of privacy, um, in the world of privacy, there's not enough privacy experts in the world to go around. So if every country in the world has to put together their own privacy uh, policies, we're going to have a total mess because it's a very complicated topic. And, uh, and so if you have 180 privacy policies in the world, that it, it all becomes a big giant blur and nobody knows what to pay attention to. But if you, if you create uh, a separate entity, some organization that countries are members of, um, so you have a, you put all the privacy experts in the world in this organization and they decide all of the privacy policies for the world or they recommend them anyway, and then they create the new standards for privacy. And every time, every time some new technology comes out, they uh, they get together and, and decide what the new policy should be surrounding that new technology. I, I think that makes much more sense than having uh, each little fiefdom of, of country all over the world um, 
wrestling with this issue. And, and so I think that, that applies to everything from intellectual property to global accounting standards to um, uh, lots of medical records issues. There's, there's, there's tons of topics like this that just get too dicey. And so rather than giving up the entire power of government, they just give up a little slice of power and let this other group help decide that issue. That's what it looks like to me. That might be a, a possible direction that we're headed. Mm. And in t- by 2030, I mean, we're dealing with, we're only 10 years out from that. And I understand that the, the prediction is not that it will have changed entirely, but it, that it will be considered inferior. Um, so there'll be a change in opinion or, or viewpoint by that time. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. The, um, a lot of these things, we're, we're living in such a uh, scalability is, is happening on radical scales. And so things go viral real fast and they just change the world opinion just overnight. Um, I mean, just six months ago, most of the listeners that you have on your show um, thought that WeWork was a great company. Um, I'm guessing that that's not true today. Hmm. So just those, those things spiral out of control really fast. Yeah. Well, let's dive in. There's one other broader quote, and then we'll get into a few education quotes here with our remaining time. And, and this one I just was, I was personally really intrigued by, so I had to ask about it, which was another 2030 um, uh, prediction that by 2030, world religions will make a resurgence with communities of faith growing by nearly 50%. Uh, over what they are today. I'm, I'm really intrigued about sort of what led to this kind of prediction where you think that, or, or, why might this happen? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the pendulum swinging um, idea. The, this idea of science versus religion, and um, there's, there's lots of things that don't make sense in the religious world to people that are kind of very analytical in their thinking, but, but religions tend to adopt. Uh, they adapt to uh, the new conditions. They adapt to new societal norms, and I, I think that that's just what what happens. Because there's there's really a, a, a need for religions in the world, and it's I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. But uh, so they ebb and flow along with uh, uh, kind of the nature of society. Sure. Okay, that that makes sense. All right. Well, let's go ahead. We have uh, we have uh, maybe seven eight minutes left in our thirty minutes together. So I have to dive into a few of the education quotes. And um, here's an, another twenty thirty quote. I think I have two more of those, and then we'll go a little different direction. But um, over fifty percent of all traditional colleges will collapse, paving the way for an entire new education industry to emerge. And uh, that certainly, I mean, there are others who have made some kinds of predictions. Obviously, Clayton Christensen is one that many people in education know about. The idea of sort of paving the way for an entire new education industry to emerge, uh, that part, um, the Christensen quote, he's really arguing that there's kind of a, it's sort of the the age of the online university. I mean, that's kind of in the, in the book. He talks about that a lot. I'm curious where, right. where you, you're going with this. Yeah, just the overall cost of a campus, the overall cost of, you know, security, maintenance, and, and facilities, all of these things just just add up. And we're, we're not having as many kids anymore. So the, the world is changing uh, dramatically. Uh, in fact, um, 
the shocking statistic I ran into is that half of all the babies born in the world today, half of them are born in six countries, uh, which which was just totally surprising. So half of all the babies born in the world are born in Angola, Congo, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Pakistan. Wow. Uh, hmm. And that that was really, really surprising. Now, these are, these are countries that aren't known for having the best education systems in the world, uh, but they're having lots of kids, and, um, and they're changing uh, the demographics of the world. So uh, how, do, how do we start educating uh, people on the other side of the planet? How do we start educating people that don't have access to the same resources that we do? That's, that's going to be real challenging. But uh, I think there's, there's a possibility that traditional colleges can adapt, but they, um, they are so, uh, they're stodgy organizations. They have, they have a hard time dealing with the bureaucracy. They have a hard time trying something new and different. And so if, if um, uh, traditional colleges start getting fewer students coming in, uh, if you if you lose ten percent of your students in a single year, that's a big blow. But if you lose ten percent of your students five years in a row, that's that's a massive blow. Yeah. Um, and so, how how does a, a a college, how does an organization adapt? Now, my thinking is is that there's there's going to be a lot more emphasis put on retraining than there is on traditional education. And so, the, one of the things that traditional colleges are not doing is they're not teaching that go-to skill that that people can rely on for income that seems to have been dropped out of the the mix for some reason like if i go to nursing school i i have a, a profession that i can count on for a long time to uh, to make money on if i go to plumbing school i can do that uh, if i go to college there, there's not that many degrees that uh that i can count on as a go-to profession where i can make a lot of money yeah and this actually relates to another one of your your predictions which is that that we will see in the next 10 years a surge of micro colleges spring to life each requiring less than six months of training and apprenticeship to switch professions that seems to sort of dovetail into what you're just describing yeah exactly um, we, we started at the Da Vinci Institute here. We started our own coding school called Da Vinci Coders back in 2012. And it was, it was rather interesting. We found out that it required roughly uh, a thousand hours of, of training for somebody to get an entry level job in, in the programming world. And, and so that's what we were providing. But since, since we started, we were the second in the nation and, uh, by, Five years later, there's over 550 schools that cropped up around the country. Um, and, and so that's just an example of kind of training that can happen in a short period of time. Um, but there's, there's lots of other areas now, cybersecurity, um, AWS, uh, Google Cloud Management. You get into AI and uh, data analytics and things like that. Those are uh, you can get uh, certifications in these areas, and, and then you start asking, are certifications more valuable than college degrees? And in a lot of cases, yes, they are. Um, 
They're, they're far more valuable, and it can be achieved in a far shorter period of time. So, so that's that's um, become becoming kind of the new game in town. Um, if there's a new profession that kind of comes out of the woodwork, it's much easier to create uh, a certification for it than it is to create an entire degree program. Um, and and so there's there's competition for uh, for these this credentialing process that's that's taking place. So. Um, if, if I can do things in, in, in three months, I would much rather do that than, you know, spend a couple hundred thousand dollars and go for four years right. when, when I don't have to. So there are a couple of other quotes that may or may not relate to, to what you're saying right now. One that's, that's probably one of the more well-known ones, even if people didn't know that it came from you, which was that the largest company uh, on the Internet is going to be an education company that we have not heard of yet. Yeah, that's by 2030. Um, I, th- I still think that that's going to happen. And I, I keep running into companies and they come up to me and they say, oh, yeah, we're that company. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I keep saying, well, show me. I, I think this is the largest opportunity in the online world. Nobody's quite cracked the code for it yet. But as soon as somebody does, and I think it's, it's a combination of, of AI and um, and. and the, the process that you're working with it will help uh, teach you things faster and faster and faster. And this idea of being able to learn things 10 times faster than you have in the past, being able to go through an entire college degree in, in a single month might be possible in the future. Mm. Uh, when somebody cracks the code for doing, doing that, then suddenly it's going to take off like a rocket. Yeah. So I, I see the massive, huge opportunity there, and lots, lots of companies are are working on that exact uh, the, that exact formula to come up with that. Right. In terms, of, in terms of cracking the code, so obviously there are schools. Southern New Hampshire, I know, is is aggressively working toward their goal of three hundred thousand online students right now. I think they're at seventy to eighty thousand, and um, and so some would say, well, it seems like they've cracked the code, but 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 largely, while they're doing some innovations on the cognitive science side. It's primarily just just expanding the dominant model of online learning. What I was sort of uh, reading between the lines as you were just talking was that the real cracking of the code is the cracking of the training and education code of of really coming up with with uh, methods and frameworks that that rapidly uh, increase the rate at which someone can achieve mastery in, in some kind of discernible skill. Is that sort of yeah. where you're going? Yeah, think about sitting down in front of a computer and you have an AI teacher bot that's trying to teach you things faster and faster. Now this AI teacher bot is learning as it's going. Uh, it's a, it's a neuro, based on a neural network. It's, it understands what your proclivities are, your idiosyncrasies. It knows what your preferred references are. It, it, it suddenly it starts understanding you and in what topics you're interested in and what, uh, what skills you currently have, what skills you're missing, and what it'll take to bring you up to a new a, a, a new skill level. It'll know when things are working, when they're not working, and it will adjust things accordingly. It'll know what time of day uh, to schedule things because you're too distracted early in the morning or late at night. And so it will know all these things about you. And so suddenly it becomes your, your partner, so to speak. And it's uh, this, this process of of learning things 
becomes much easier as as it learns how to teach you. It learns your personality. Um, that's that's what it looks like to me. So a true artificially and in, in, artificial intelligence infused adaptive learning environment of some sort. Yeah, and maybe throw in a couple extra words. <laughs> Put a few other educational <laughs> buzzwords in. That's right. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, well, this is wonderful. I, I, I'll just share one other quote that then, and we'll kind of finish up. It, and this isn't a prediction as much as, um, well, I mean, it is a it is a prediction, but it's a little longer. You, you wrote, while classrooms will be in use for many years to come, their value will diminish quickly as the online options become more pervasive. Many of the physical classrooms will be converted to e-learning laboratories, some to research centers. The real classroom of the future will take place inside the mind of the student, wherever they happen to be. Yeah, th- this notion of of getting people together and an instructor together at the same time and space. Um, that, that was such a, well, it was necessary in the past, but uh, it becomes such a massive obstacle in the future because we have uh, incredibly busy lives. And if we're kind of adjusting our thinking that everything should be on demand, that everything should be when I need it at the time that I need it. And so the idea of, of, scheduling my life around a time in a classroom uh, is going to start seeming really archaic. It'll, it'll start seeming like a dial telephone to us. Yeah. It's interesting in the online world, um, the, some of the early online experiments, the fastest growing online programs were like university of Phoenix. Um, obviously with distance learning went well before that. And it was an asynchronous kind of interaction just with text. But then there were people that wanted to take advantage of these real-time technologies because they were trying to replicate the classroom in the online space. And it's, it's really in the last couple of decades that people are trying to imagine a new models that, that couldn't exist in a traditional face-to-face environment. It seems like people, things are going in the direction that you're talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I was giving a talk a few years back to one of the largest college systems in the country. And I had uh, several college presidents sitting around the table. Um, and I, I just asked this off the wall question for them. I says, you know, where did, where did the four year degree come from? And, uh, and I knew that none of them would know the answer. It was kind of marvelous watching them with their mouth dropped open. They said, well, <laughs> well, well, we just, we all use them. That's, that's what we use. <laughs> but nobody knew where, where the four-year degree actually came from. So the four-year degree was actually a U.S. invention. We thought it might have been European or it might have been British. But <clears throat> So it came about in the early 1800s. In the early 1800s, it, it was a time when information was very scarce. And so they decided that um, this is a good idea that we don't want people to just know about their, their core subject matter, what their major is. We want them to have a breadth of information. So, so they devised this, this plan where half of the courses that, pe- that students take are, uh, are part of the breadth of it, information, and the other half is the core knowledge, the, the major that they're studying. And so that's the same uh, formula that's used today, that, that people, half of the courses today in a four-year degree are the, uh, oriented around the breadth of information. Um, but it can be argued that we're getting 
today we're getting that information ambiently that um, the average person uh, in the U.S. is is uh, consuming information 12 hours and 7 minutes every day. Now, some of it's just music, some of it's playing video games. But in the middle of all of this, they're, they're, they're learning a lot of things about uh, history and culture and, and all that. And so if we would, would eliminate the, the breadth of education, the, those breadth classes, that means that we could get a college degree in, in half the time. Now, it's, it's not that anything that colleges are teaching are bad, um, uh, but it's, it's the opportunity costs associated with them. Is this, uh, is this worth what I'm paying for it? Uh, and in, in a lot of cases, there's, there's something that's more valuable that they can be studying. So th- there's lots of ways of looking at education. There's lots of ways of discussing it and talking about it. But uh, uh, I, I just think that it's, it's, it's on the verge of changing completely over the next few years. Yeah, this is great. I, I, I am at the end of the time, and I'd love to go in further. There's a whole kind of even um, maybe more far out um, conversation that I'd love to have at some point in the future, if you'd ever be open to it, about uh, when we think about augmentations for the human brain and how does that impact um, education. But I want to respect your time today, so we'll just have to leave that as a teaser. And maybe if you're willing to come back in six months or a year, we can dive into that that sort of you know education on Mars or um, <laughs> the ex- expansion of the human brain, some of those kind of pieces. But Thomas, I really appreciate the work that you do in the world. It's a real gift. Uh, it gets us to think and to imagine new and more promising possibilities. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.